Hi, this is Dr. Ali Sharma with a trigger warning for everyone. You may hear us speaking about life experience in this podcast that have meaning for you, that may be difficult to hear, or that may affect your loved ones. As always, we encourage you to seek help from a licensed mental health professional or other healthcare provider with any questions you may have about what you're going through. Everything in this podcast is for informational purposes only, and it's not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please don't delay seeking help because of something you hear on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. And I'm Bridget Malcolm. And this is Model Mentality, a podcast where we are opening up the dialogue on mental health, one conversation at a time. Today in the podcast, we have Natasha Silverbell. Natasha is a former model and founder of Silverbell Coaching, a coaching service that provides discrete emotional and behavioral support through comprehensive strategies for eating disorders, mental health disorders, and substance abuse. She has more than a decade of experience working in the field of addiction and is a member of the International Coaching Federation. Natasha started modeling at the age of 16 and was signed with Ford Models. She has worked internationally and with brands like Valentino, Hermes, and Etro. Thanks, Bridget, for the introduction. So I actually originally met Natasha because of our clinical work and partnering with her to help people. Um, And I didn't know that she was a former model until later on. And she fits so well with what we're doing. And I think one of the things I want to call out is that in our field, uh, at least with the treatment of substance and alcohol use disorders, often the people that can help the most are those who are in recovery themselves. And her story is beautiful because she has um, experience with addiction herself, which is what we're going to talk about. And then she is helping people to with the transition to sobriety, amongst many other things. You know, Natasha has been a huge help for me on my own journey to recovery from eating disorder and from certain substance abuse. And she she's just really taught me a lot on how to be there for other people you know, how to be non-judgmental and how to hold the space for someone and whilst not losing yourself in the process. Like she's taught me a lot about boundaries. She's taught me a lot about relationships. She's really just, I don't know, she's just been like this cool older sister in my life that I'm beyond grateful to have um, in my corner. (laughs) So I'm definitely excited for all of you guys to hear her story and to kind of, yeah, get to know her a little bit. She's a really special one. So Natasha, we are so excited to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on and being here with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what I'd like to speak with you about today is to go back early on in your childhood and adolescence. What led you to start using alcohol, substances, and then I want to bring us forward to where you are today. But first, before we begin, I like to ask all of our guests this. Why have you decided to come on Model Mentality to tell your story? That's such a really important question. I think that behind every action, there are motives that drive people to want to um, communicate um, what their intention is. And so I'm so grateful, first of all, that, that you and Bridget have decided to have a, have a platform to talk about the mentality that goes on in the fashion industry. I think it is not something that there's a lot of discussion about. So I think um, I am just really grateful for both of you um, and what you've been doing and keeping this platform alive and and going so we can have earnest conversations about it. And I suppose that that is part of why I'm here. I would like to share um, my experience as a young teenage girl 
and a young adult um, when I really began modeling at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 in the fashion industry and the pressures that came from that. And if we don't speak up, then how will people know? So I think that's my motive for today. Thank you for being brave to open up this way. So let's go back then to your childhood, your teens. I'm curious about, let's talk about the concept of the gateway drug, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever that was for you. Let's talk about when you started using either tobacco, alcohol, substances. What was going on around that time, your motivations? And then we'll you know, understand the progression towards um, what we call now as alcohol use or substance use disorder. Sure. So uh, I was a child in the 90s, in my teenage years, and in the early 90s. And uh, like I think most teenagers, uh, I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to fit in. And I, I did have this feeling inside of me of not feeling good enough, of not feeling like I was a part of the in crowd. or, And I just, I wanted to be accepted. And drugs and alcohol, if somebody has a joint or somebody has alcohol or now it's more, you know, pills and designer drugs that kids had, have, um, it's so easy to be like, oh, you want one too? <laughs> you know? And most of the time it was a very cool nod. So I was looking for acceptance. Okay. And tell us a little bit about, you said fitting in. So what was your social life, life like back then? I was an, actually a star athlete in high school. I was a top cross country runner. I was a top um, equestrian rider on our equestrian team. I had a boyfriend, um, but there was always this cool crowd and I didn't, I was friends with them, but I wasn't invited to sit at the lunch table. So um, I kept myself busy riding horses or you know practicing um, at running after school, but um, I didn't really have like a crew, if you will. Yeah. And you know, when you describe just your life, the checklist that you just gave us, it mm -hmm. sounds robust and <laughs> accomplished, but that's yeah. the external right. and it's about the internal, right? That often exactly. leads people to use. Yeah. So what, what did you start using back then? Um, well, what I could get my hands on and I say, I think I smoked marijuana at 15 and I didn't really like the effects of it. Um, it, it just I don't know, didn't resonate with my body chemistry, if you will. And I, I tried alcohol. It was rum and Coke back then or Jack and Coke in the 90s. That's what we had, our Mad Dog 2020. It was something we would <laughs> gravitate towards. But I couldn't really hold my liquor either. And so when I was around 17, um, this is in the 90s, so Acid was kind of, kind of making a comeback. The Doors movie was out again in 1994. And so this Kurt Cobain kind of hallucinogenic perspective was setting in. It was Nirvana. Um, and, um, and so I, I was actually starting to hit acid at 17 and, uh, I couldn't get my hands on it as readily as I wanted, which was a good thing. Um, and then, uh, I'll pause there cause that was kind of my high school experience with substances. Yeah. And did your substance use address that issue of wanting to fit in or, or in which way did it impact you? It did. Um, now looking back. Uh, not to the level that I would have hoped it would have, <laughs> interestingly enough, but it, it lent itself to, you know, people who were doing the same things. I wasn't going to take the acid alone. I was certainly going to do it with a friend. Um, and so therefore I had a friend because we were doing acid at the time. I didn't put those connections together, um, but I just thought I had a friend and this is, we're going to have fun together. 
Okay, and I know obviously the alcohol and substance use evolved, right, as you progress through your modeling career. So I'm going to turn it over to Bridget to explore that, and then we'll come back to this and how it evolved. Thanks, Allie. So you mentioned that you started modeling at 18. How did you get scouted and what interested you about the industry? Sure. Um, I was in my actually teenage years, I was doing a little bit of modeling in the uh, Detroit area, south uh, around Chicago area and, and doing some things. But the bigger modeling came in New York um, and I was uh, Miss Michigan USA and I went to Miss USA in 1996 and scouts were there. And so um, 18, 19, I was pulled into a larger um, kind of platform of modeling in New York and Los Angeles. And, and what was your initial reaction to the industry at that age? I was excited. I had made it. This is fun. I'm getting real modeling gigs, not some little thing in the Midwest. You know, I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I've arrived. <laughs> you know? How did modeling from such a young age affect your sense of self and presence? Mm, such a good question. At the time I was so young, I didn't even understand that I had a sense of self or there was a sense to be had. Um, I knew I had a presence because I was paid to be in front of a camera or on a runway. So I understood, again, to Ali's point, the external motivation that I was getting rewarded for presenting, if you will. Um, but now looking back, uh, recognizing that it, 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 was, it was a commodity to be traded, what I looked like, how I walked on a runway, um, you know, that's kind of my takeaway now as an as a older uh, woman. And can you remember what that felt like, the discrepancy between like your internal and your external world at that age? Oh, gosh, what a really important question. Um, I actually, you know, looking back now that I know there was a distinction between the two, I was scared all the time. I, I was living in anxiety and worry. I wasn't enough. That feeling of not good enough was still there exponentially as a young model because you're at a casting call in New York City and there's a hundred girls for one position, if you will, or two at most. And the weeding down process and the advancing process, am I going to make it? And so there was always this sense of anxiety and worry now that I look back and therefore um, where substances came into play because they would calm that worry or escape from it with the substance. How would you like to see the industry change, which I know that your career was a few decades ago, but I guess what could have helped you cope back then at that age with that, where you were at in your life at that point? Having a mentor, a fellow to talk to. I remember one time when I was, uh, I was with Ford Models for most of my New York career, um, about four years. And my agent, uh, after New Year's Eve one day, she said, you know, Natasha, I really want to take you out to dinner and spend some time getting to know you. I've, I've, that's my, my um, what did she call it? My New Year's resolution was to get to know my, my models a little bit better and spend more time with them. And really, and I felt so excited and cared for. I was so excited that she cared about me as a human being, even though I didn't have the language to internalize that then. I just felt like, oh, I like her more. Oh, that's great. Because I felt like there was um. Um, I want to dare I say a motherly concern because I was so young, if you will. So Natasha, what I'm curious about um, is what happened to you as you became an adult, right? Let's say 18, 19, 20, a young adult, you entered this modeling career. And, you know, obviously Bridget and I have been interviewing a lot of models and, you know, what we're thinking about is just how were you as an individual functioning within that environment? And then 
what were the motivations or why, how did the substance use evolve through modeling? And let's look at it in terms of like risk factors, right? Every industry has its risk factors. So Mm -hmm. what was it about you in the context of modeling that caused substance use, alcohol use to be sustained? Mm, Okay. Um, And I want to make sure I answer the questions, uh, the questions that you ask, because there's a couple in there, but you, you, the last piece you just shared was how did it get sustained? And I think that's really important to focus on um, because people are going to try things. People are going to do things once or twice or even a handful of times or more. But how do you know if you are have a habit or a behavior that is not healthy or appropriate or should continue? And I know now that uh, people will ask me, how do you, because this is what I do now for a living is help people identify what are harmful behaviors in their life. Is, is it a harm to yourself or others in this action? But to go back to the 18 to let's say 25 year old where I was just in that industry and lifestyle is it's not just, you know, taking your agent, what we called bookers would just call you and say, okay, you have to go to this location, this location, this location, and a go see and see if you'll you know, get the job or what have you. It was then, oh, the agent really likes you or this person really likes you or so-and-so is going to be out at dinner, meet us here, we're going to go here. And the hustle began. So there's enough about presenting and doing the job and going on a casting call. But then the lifestyle of, well, if you really want to get the job and you really want to do something, you need to do this X, Y, and Z. And that's where the commodity piece feels like because when I would show up to the dinner or the nightclub or the drinks or whatever it was, it's as a model, you know how to turn it on and you know how to kind of get the job. Our job is to present well in order to make sure that we get the job. That's, that's what we do. And so we just had to take that skill set out to dinner and, and perform, if you will, in, in the company of people who we didn't know in order to be liked. And I think, I don't know where I'm actually heading with this, but I want to answer all the questions, but that that's the sustainable part is that going and doing those dinners all the time around people who you were meeting for the first time, oftentimes there were always new people, um, created a, a lifestyle that you had to get comfortable with and alcohol is freely served. Uh, drugs were freely given by everybody and to be immediately accepted, it was kind of like you needed to partake. And if you said no, well, let's just say I never said no. And if models did, I give them a ton of credit. <laughs> so it's that age old concept of peer pressure or mm-hmm. what, what are the norms in this industry? And yeah. then and then how do you hold your boundaries if you can? Oh, yeah. So for you, so there was the pressure of the industry, the pressure to succeed um, as you became older, let's say in your mid 20s. Um, you know, what was it that you ended up using even outside of the context of these industry related meetings? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So really good question. Part of part of my substance use disorder was, yes, the industry, but I wouldn't say that was the whole uh, piece of my life um, because I would go home at night and um, and would continue. So that's where the substance wasn't just for peer pressure. And I love to quote uh, Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's partner. And he often says the bonds of addiction are too loose to be felt until they're too tight to be broken. And that is so true. 
um, you don't realize you're becoming addicted and a slave to a substance in order to calm your nerves, whether it's a pill, then it was Xanax, now it's Klonopin everyone uses. And I was habitually abusing these substances, you know, years before I came to New York to help calm my nerves and my anxiety. But in New York, it was so readily accepted. And then the designer drugs came into play. So I didn't really experience designer drugs until I came to the metropolis cities. Um, but yeah, there were a lot of different pressures um, continually. Um, and I ended up using every drug possible. Um, I never put a needle in my arm, but I, there were times I was, um, you know, snorting heroin and anything really I could. It's really sad. Um, the links that this addiction will take you because with a sober mind, I would never choose to make those choices. Um, one day rolls into the next and um, it's kind of like the Chinese water torture. It slowly drips and you don't even realize what's happening. Yeah, so you're touching a, upon a good point, right? It sounds like you were using different substances and looking back, what was your awareness of what you were doing? Like, what were you in distress about it? You know, were you taking some issue with it, even semi-consciously, or was it was it not that? No, I was never taking uh, issue with that I had a problem um, because the company I kept was doing as much, if not more, or encouraging me or buying it and saying, you know, come on. And there would be times where I didn't want to do it, but my friends were like, no, we're going out. You've got to come. Like, no, I've been out three days in a row. I don't want to go. No, you've got to come, you know. And there's, you know, I just didn't have that agency to say, not tonight, I'm going to stay home and take care of me. I didn't have that language. And that's that mentorship piece where my agent had, I, I only went to one meaningful dinner with her, mind you, because it was so meaningful and so wonderful. Um, it was kind of scary to be cared for so lovingly that way. Um, um yeah, there's a couple layers to it of what kept me going. And it was certainly the company I kept. Yeah, so there's the company. And then, you know, I like to ask this of people. So in my clinical practice, what did it give you? What was the gain from using it? I didn't have to feel. That's what I was going for is to not care and not feel, even though I can't. Um, I couldn't then remember, uh, feel like a commodity that was traded subconsciously there certainly was that feeling of being an object bartered and traded for um, and substances was a great escape and justify and then get all dressed up and go out on the town everything's fine right everything's fine like I have a great meaningful life yeah I was escaping okay so as and we hear that a lot right people is, use it to escape use it to numb out emotions mm -hmm. but then it only works for so long Right. So I'm curious, yeah, for you, how did things peak in terms of, let's say, substance use and where did things go wrong for you? Mm -hmm. I never, I had consequences, of course, in the modeling industry um, after years of showing up late, not showing up to cast or to jobs that I had booked with designers and they loved me dearly and I cared for them. We had great personal relationships and they would be very forgiving because either they were using themselves or you know, they, um, they just understood, oh, Tasha, she'll get, she'll get her stuff together. She'll be back. Don't worry about it. And so finally the agency right before 9-11 terminated me. And that was a, the first real consequence I ever had. And I was so in oblivion in my delusional mentality. I was like, oh, I'll just go over to another agency and I'll be fine. 
And but first, I was going to go to the south of France and party with my friends all summer, <laughs> and then I would come back, and then 9/11 happened, and so um, that really slowed one the industry down. Everything went dark, and um, I got pregnant um, when I was 26. So about a year or two after that, 9/11 happened, and um, that's where I was able to stop for my unborn baby. Um, I was six weeks pregnant when I found out and I have a very, very healthy baby boy now. His name is Samuel and he's 18. But um, at the time uh, I was, I didn't think I had a problem because I was able to stop immediately. So what's the big deal? No one had ever brought it to my attention that I had a problem though, either. It's not as if I had a mother or a significant other that was worried about me, you know? Um, so there's that piece. Um, I had to really take ownership in my choices. When the modeling agency terminated your contract, did they give you a reason why? Um, I think they did. Uh, you know, I, I remember it was a pretty harsh stroke. And um, at the time, Ford Models was down in Soho on Green Street. And they were on the fourth floor. And I remember when my booker gave me my book old back then, and we had these big old heavy books we had to lug around. And she just said, you know, Natasha, because I, I had not showed up for another job I booked or something. And she said, you know, Natasha, we just, we can't do this anymore. We can't do this anymore. And I just sat there really stunned. And I said, I'm just going to go to another agency. She says, okay. And that was kind of it. It was really sad. Um, I've never really reflected too much on that exact moment. But what did happen is God gave me a swift kick in the rear end and I, I had platform heels on. It was the nineties and I walked down the stairs and I, I remember stumbling and falling down a flight of stairs. It was just like a good omen, you know, just it's time and good riddance. It's time to go, Natasha. <laughs> mm. yeah. But you're, you're, you're touching upon something that happens a lot, as you know, right. That mm. oftentimes people, you know, their work performance is disrupted or absenteeism, like you're talking about because mm. of substance and alcohol use disorders, right? And it can often present that way, but without the person themselves having awareness of it or having an mm. intervention, like probably you would have, well, who knows if you would have benefited from, but it sounds like someone needed to intervene and that hadn't happened yet. Correct. I, I do, I do think, and I know, and that's why I do what I do for a living now is I intervene in people's lives in the, the most appropriate possible of circumstances that can present themselves. Had somebody at the agency, and this is a really good point, um, never thought about it before, thank you, uh, is had someone been there to say, we don't know what's going on, but we're very concerned about you. We'd like you to meet with this counselor and talk about, I might have, I, I, was, I did re want somebody to reach in and save me from myself, but I didn't know that then. So all the smoke and mirrors I could put up to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'll go to another agent, were just talk. There was no one to penetrate through to what was really going on. And with the right training, as you know, Dr. Sharma, and the right communication skills, you can penetrate people at the right time if, um, if you're given the opportunity. Yeah, exactly. We need to create, especially, you know, employers, a safety net around people. I mean, you've heard the concept of, you know, employee assistant programs and now mental mm -hmm. health is top of mind with the pandemic. But if you offer the help, people will take it. They will. But if the help is not around, right, no. then, yeah, there's a, it's a missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so fast forward a little bit, because I know you mentioned you had a son, you stopped using 
and you thought that you could stop because you had that experience. So we presume that you continued to use. So I just want to hear a little bit about that progression and what prompted you to finally get sober. Sure. So um, I was able to stop for someone or something else, like a child in my womb. And I had a healthy baby boy in pregnancy. And But I had gained, I was 115 pounds. That's about 5'11 and a half is my actual height. I just say six foot, it's easier. And, um, and I was able to, I was 115 pounds. And so I gained about 100 pounds in my pregnancy because my, I had been starving myself. I had an eating disorder that I didn't know I had because I was just restricting and the substances made it easy to restrict. I was on a lot of amphetamines. And um, when I gave birth, I had all this extra baby weight too. So my vanity and body image issues then started to become an issue because I was sober for those two, three months. And then the desire to be thin. Um, I had no support structure to your point, Dr. Sharma. I had no therapist. I did, but not really. It was a one-time go in for 45 minutes, tell them what I want them to know and leave kind of thing. So to me, that lifeline wasn't uh, a very well used one. And I didn't have a, a therapist that had the skill set to kind of call me on my stuff, um, which I do think is important. And um, I wanted to kind of escape my reality and be thin again. And the only way I knew to do that was through amphetamines and substances. So I began again. And, um, and that culminated when my son was 13 months old, uh, to me being in a blackout with him a park I had taken him to in the city. And I realized then that I might have a problem because I had continually started to use and drink and use and drink and try to balance motherhood and drink and, you know, use a little bit. And then after they go to sleep, use more at the end of the day. And it just became an exhausting dance to the point where I would put myself, my son in harm's way. And I, I then at the therapist I had been seeing and brought my husband in at the time and said, it's all your fault. If you know, it's always someone else's fault for why I, I am, you know, putting a bottle in my mouth or something in my, my, my nose. And she said, Natasha, I think it's time. I think it's time you went to AA. And that, that's what, that's what I mean by calling me out that I was ready to hear that message. I was relieved. Somebody was saying, do something. Here's a solution for you. And, um, I started my journey back to recovery then. You know, I think this is such an important point. You know, what you say, you are almost wanting someone Mm -hmm. to intervene. And I think from the outside, a lot of, let's say, family members or loved ones of people who have substance use and alcohol use disorders are afraid to intervene. There's so much anxiety around it because there's this fear of alienation or just the worry of like, okay, maybe the person doesn't want to hear this. And oftentimes that can happen too. But there is always a chance that that intervention can be life-saving, right? It can really be exactly what the person needs. So I just want to call that out because I hear what you're saying and I want people who are listening to this to hear that as well. Absolutely. Um, And to that point, that's why I do what I do for a living because someone just once asked me, what if I could go back in time when I was that young girl struggling before Ford let me go, right? When things are really getting bad and I don't even know. And I'm oblivious to it. What could have somebody said or done? Because I was really good at telling people what they wanted to hear. I was really good at conflict avoiding. I was really good at um, just kind of slipping around and not putting myself in a position where I'm going to be challenged, especially as a beautiful model. Like 
people don't challenge you that much. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, so I certainly wasn't going to put myself in a position where people were going to, you know, Natasha, I think you need to go to rehab. That never came across my um, conversation path. And I do wish somebody would have reached in and not even had a conversation with me. And I've done this with my clients now where I just go in and kind of someone will ask me to go check on somebody or something and do a wellness check and I'll go in and I'll see what needs to happen. And I know conversation isn't the point. It's in the action. And even not having met a client before, I'll go in and I'll sit on their bed and just say, do you want to get better? You know, and inevitably, whether they're high or not, the answer is yes. And I move into action. And either I take them to detox that day or I'll ask them to come back in for a session. But um, yeah, I really wish somebody would have just scooped in and um, taken me to rehab. Yeah. So let's talk about sobriety. I'm going to turn it over to Bridget to hear a little bit more about what that process was like for you. Yeah, thank you. Um, So Natasha, what was your first impression of sobriety? Boring. (laughs) lame no fun (laughs) and what helped you get through the early days of sobriety um well I am a member of a 12-step program and there's something in this community called fellowship and um just knowing and seeing people being happy and laughing and giggling and finding people who looked like me was helpful and seeing it gave me hope that this isn't going to be boring, lame, and um, there's another way. There is another way to live your life. Mm. Um, Were you modeling in early sobriety? And if so, how did that feel doing that job that is so loaded for you sober? Really good question. I was, and um, I went back um, after the agency let me go and, uh, and did find an agency to represent me in sobriety, and it felt validating felt really healthy. It felt really good. It was a different kind of modeling. It wasn't as high fashion or as intense, um, but it was more wholesome. um, And it, it brought a sense of kind of redemption for me, I think. What did you struggle with the most in early recovery? Um, Feeling a purpose with my life. Like what now? If the party girl is gone and there's this sober path, like what in the heck am I going to do with my life? And so what did your life look like? in those early days when you were doing the modeling like you were doing it and kind of struggling to find your sense of purpose? The modeling began to lose its luster in my life um, because I didn't enjoy being an object in front of a camera, even though what I walk into a room with whatever energy or truth or sober-minded presence of being a team player and getting a job done for the consumer and the, you know, whoever the, the job was for with the photographer, the stylist and all of that, that, that's great, but it certainly didn't leave me super fulfilled. Um, And I, I definitely wanted something more for my life than just a pretty picture. Mm. And what would you like to tell people today who might be considering going into recovery from substances or any sort of lifestyle situation? Oh, it's amazing. It's hard work to put one lifestyle to bed, so to speak, and move into another lifestyle. But it, it's just, it's so limiting to use substances to the point where you cripple yourself. You put limitations, even though some people say, oh, but I've never been so close to God on 
psychedelics or something. Okay, but that was on psychedelics. What if you could access the divine or a spiritual realm or be successful in, in a chosen industry without substances? You know, it's just so freeing, actually. I can agree with you. Um, how many years are you sober today? 12 years of continuous sobriety. And today. how long have you been in recovery programs for? That's a great, great question. I've been in the recovery process since 2004, so about 18 wow. years. And today, at 12 years of continuous sobriety, what does recovery look like for you? And how has that changed from your early days? Oh, my life is so full and so rich, not monetarily. I mean, I have things and I don't want for things, but, and I've worked hard, but I feel so fulfilled at night. If I do have anxious moments, they are fleeting because I have tools and ways in which I can be at peace with myself as I work through a challenge in the day. And the reward that comes from knowing that um, I don't have to look externally or take something externally to be at peace. So Natasha, when in your sobriety did you have this, let's say, aha moment about where you wanted your career to go, meaning coaching and working mm-hmm. in recovery yourself? Tell us about the evolution towards your current career. Sure. Uh, I never had an aha moment to do what I'm doing now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was a year, I was two years sober. And um, I was divorced only eight or nine months at that time. Uh, I I ended up having three children with the father of my children. And um, one of my friends was a a recovery coach, and it was an industry that was gaining more respect. Um, And I went to explore it, and I took a course, and it kind of blew my mind that, that there are different pathways to healing and there isn't just one. I love 12 step programs and they saved my life and I fully support them, but there are other pathways to meet a client where they're at than a 12 step program. And I was like, wow, well, of course there are. Again, to your point, Dr. Sharma, you know, had the agency had somebody, a recovery coach or a coach or somebody sit down and say, how are you feeling? What's going on? You know, just without judgment would have been so mind blowing. So it was an evolution. Uh, then I started getting one client at a time and I was taken under the wing of a forensic psychologist who trained me for two years. And that really opened up my horizons to more case management and putting a wrap around service with people in the home. So let's say a model has to go on set and she's having uh, challenges staying sober throughout the day. She would have a sober companion or a coach go with her that holds her accountable um, to her therapist or her doctor. And it's like a full concierge wraparound service. So two years after you started to kind of explore coaching, and then when did you actually start your business? So I believe we formulated the LLC in 2012. Okay. Yep. And that was the more formal Silverbell Coaching LLC. And my maiden name is Belle and my married name is Silver. And so I always remember being married thinking Bell Silver doesn't really ring, no pun intended. And so when I got divorced, because our marriage was very complicated, and I will say substances were heavily used, it was our currency in all of our marriage. Um, And so in order for me to maintain in my sobriety, um, the very disheartening decision to have to get divorced 
came to light. And that is an area whether today or another time we could talk about, because I think that um, the sustainability of, of recovery and the environment you find yourself in is really important to create um, a lifetime of continual abstinence. Yeah, so can you tell us then about your community that has supported you, right, with this duration of, absten of abstinence you have had, 18 years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, a couple different communities that, that evolved, but the first was a 12-step program, and by going into a space with other people struggling to abstain from substances, whether they were successful in the day or not, um, what I like about this program that I'm a part of is, is if you have a desire to stop, not that you have stopped. And so I wanted to stop and I was able to commune with other people having that same desire um, without having to have an absolute in my life. And that was really a beautiful entry point, which then opened the door to other communities that I was recently against. You know, I was raised very devout Christian, so I was very anti-religion. I rebelled against the church and any organized religion said they're the problem, when really I was the one making the choices <laughs> not to be a part of them um, for whatever reason. And I've come back to um, a fellowship in my church um, when I got divorced. I, I chose an apartment across the street from the uh, the church I grew up in, and they're a beautiful, welcoming, non-judgmental community. And I think that's so important about community. Um, what makes a healthy community is um, not judging others. Um, it's so important. Um, but people all have the same desire in that community to want to better themselves in a certain manner. Um, so it's not just that people don't judge them, but there's an action behind it. Yeah. And, you know, just to go back to like the picture of your career now, sure. we know right in our field that many people in recovery are significantly helped by others who are in recovery. Right. And it's powerful that you've had the experience you've had and now you're helping many other people who are in a similar position. So it, it takes one to know one. So <laughs> tell us about that impact on you psychologically. What does that do for you every day? Um, helps me breathe. You know, I mean, I think the two things that kept me um, so fear-based, um, whether to pick up a substance and have a harmful behavior in my life and or to not want to get divorced as the mother of three children to the father, I mean, who wants to pick up a family was the fear of being alone and the fear of financial insecurity. Those were two driving forces in my life. Well, I'll keep using these drugs because I have these friends or I'll stay in this relationship because I'm afraid of being alone or I won't have anything if I leave and talk about motivation. I mean, that's really unhealthy motivation. And so the flip side is um, the relationships I have now in my life personally and, and community are those of love and compassion and they're not fear-based and they don't create anxiety, <laughs> you know? And that's how I, I, we do body scans a lot in our work and gut checks and what does it feel like to be in the presence of so-and-so as I coach a client, if you will, um, what does it feel like to be around that person as you decide how much you want to have them in your life or not? And that's how you develop your community as when you feel really at peace around another human being. Um, it takes time sometimes, but if there isn't an uh, anxiety or a rapid heart rate of, oh no, uh, what are they going to think of me? Um, then you should pause and look at that relationship. So you've talked about a lot of things, right, that 
let's say when you were using, you know, the role of anxiety, the role of escapism, the role of others around you using, which sustained your use, or it was part of the ecosystem you were in, the cultural mm -hmm. norms mm -hmm. of, of your industry, also your family or, you know, who you were around. And, you know, all of it led to a few different tipping points, right? Which led you to become sober, but then help around the interventions around helped in you getting sober and then obviously post sobriety or in the period of sobriety, post becoming sober, so many things changed. It sounded like to provide you the tools and supports to maintain it, right? It's mm -hmm. a huge life transformation that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So, you know, there may be a lot of people listening who are contemplating becoming sober or who understand what you're talking about. So what would be from a mental health perspective, what's your advice? to those who might be using for escapism or using to numb out what they're going through emotionally? Sure. If, if people listening today are hearing uh, this and they're contemplating if they have an issue or they know they do and they wanna do something about it, I encourage them to pause and think about the healthiest people they know in their life and to reach out and ask to speak with them and reach out to a professional that um, they trust will give them an honest answer that won't be, you know, misguided. And I think um, by asking for help to people, and if they don't get help from that person to go on to the next, don't give up, keep asking people for help. And, you know, what you seek is seeking you is a quote by Rumi, whom I love to, to always kind of share, you know, if you're seeking drugs, you're going to find them. If you're seeking solution and help, you will find it. So don't stop. Thank you, Natasha. I'm going to turn it over to Bridget for a few more reflections. Yes, thank you so much. I have two more questions for you. Um, so as a recovered woman, what advice would you want to give to 20-year-old Natasha who had just moved to New York and was struggling and was over her head in the fashion industry? Um, I would like to give her a mentor <laughs> and somebody to give her hope and tell her everything will be okay, but she has to keep her side of the street clean, you know, and to surround herself with people who have her best interest at heart and healthy lifestyle um, patterns and behaviors. It's to, to be mindful of the company you keep, you know, that you feel people really care about you. And time for the $50 million question. If you had 50 million Instagram followers, what would you want to say to them about mental health? really profound question um have compassion on others that aren't like you sometimes when we pass judgment too quickly on other human beings um we we certainly don't know their experience or what they woke up feeling like no matter what they look like or what they're posting they're human beings and we all struggle and feel the same feelings we all put our pants on the same way and to have compassion for people who you don't agree with or don't see things eye to eye it doesn't mean you have to um, have contempt for somebody who doesn't see life the way you do. Incredible. Thank you so much, Natasha. This was such a wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Thank you both for having me. And I really want to applaud both of you and to continue on your platform of bringing awareness to this industry on mental health and stability.
Now, let's get clinical. What stands out to me from a clinical perspective are three aspects of Natasha's story. First, why people use substances and alcohol. Second, how do people become addicted? And third, transitioning to sobriety. So on the first, why do people use substances and alcohol? In Natasha's case, her use started early in her teens as a way to become more socially accepted. She felt like she didn't fit in and it was a way to maladaptively address exactly this. Initially, it sounds like it worked, but over time, substance use and alcohol use became the currency in her relationships and was a great way to escape from how she was feeling. The company that she kept sustained her use. According to NIDA, or the National Institute on Drug Abuse, there are a variety of reasons why people begin using drugs, including to feel pleasure, such as being high or intoxicated, to feel better, such as relieving stress, forgetting problems, or numbing out emotions, to do better, such as enhancing cognition or performance, and finally, out of sheer curiosity, peer pressure, or experimentation. Many people may experiment with drugs and alcohol, but it may not turn into a substance use or alcohol use disorder. So on the second, how do people become addicted? Addiction to both drugs and alcohol is a complex process, and the answer relates to our biology and the influences in our lives. Think genetic predispositions, difficult developmental influences, and other risk factors including but not limited to mental health conditions such as anxiety, depression, trauma, and stress. And use over time can cause changes in your brain and changes in your reward circuitry and lead to long-term consequences such as changes in learning, judgment, decision-making, stress, memory, and behavior. So on the third, let's talk about transitioning to sobriety. The good news is that both substance use and alcohol use disorders are treatable, but as in Natasha's story, it involves a life transformation, one that's supportive, hopeful, and fulfilling. Let me read you a quote from NIDA. Quote, drug addiction is a complex disease and quitting usually takes more than good intentions or a strong will. Drugs change the brain in ways that make quitting hard, even for those who want to. Fortunately, researchers have found treatments that can help people recover from drug addiction and lead productive lives, end quote. And those treatments may include medications, behavioral therapies, and community support interventions such as 12-step programs. Going back to Natasha, she has taken her experiences with drug and alcohol abuse and transformed her career and the lives of so many to be that support that she did not have, to ask that question that she was never asked, how are you doing? And to support a highly treatable medical condition that can be reversed and lead people to move towards fulfillment and engaging lives. Many people struggle with addiction, alcohol use, and substance use disorders. And we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. Thanks for listening to Model Mentality. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.